0: So this morning, we're gonna start in, uh, in God's word in the Old Testament. You'll see a couple of passages of scripture on the screen uh, behind me probably in just a moment, but we're gonna be in Exodus and Deuteronomy and a lot of other places. And so you can go ahead and turn to Exodus and maybe keep a finger in Deuteronomy because what we're gonna see is sort of a more topical approach today, which is unusual for us. Um, as you know, if you're part of our church and have been here for some time, um, I prefer my preferred method is to go through books of the Bible. I think that's the best way to teach the Bible. And yet this month in the month of, of December, kind of approaching Christmas morning on the 25th which we will be here for Christmas morning on the 25th but approaching that day we're looking at an advent series if you're unfamiliar with Advent that's kind of what these candles are representing down here and there's several of them and uh, I think five in total and as we're seeing these one lit every Sunday leading up to Christmas and what the advent season literally means if you don't know what the word Advent means it just means arrival and specifically it's the arrival of someone or something that's long anticipated isn't that the Christmas story right it's it's that Jesus has arrived and he was long anticipated that his arrival was one that people longed for and sort of the, the way that we've titled this whole series in, in Advent is Holding Out for a Hero, which if, if you're an 80s rock music fan, that may, may make you think about Bonnie Tyler. I don't know. Um, some of you guys are probably like reliving the, you know, a, a reel of memories. And you're like, I was trying to forget that part of my life, but here we go, right? Uh, that song, Holding Out for a Hero, is is interesting to me because it's about uh, Bonnie Tyler that's singing about a basically that no man was good enough to meet her needs. And she's singing about no man's good enough. She says, where are all the good men gone? Where are all the gods? She even brings the name of Hercules into it and says, he is a God-man, right? We need someone like Hercules that's better than any other man to be what I need him to be. And really, that's the message of Christmas. That's the message of Advent, is that there are a lot of great men. And we've already talked about in the first uh, two weeks, Adam and Abraham. And today we'll talk about Moses. But there's a lot of great men in the Bible, great men and women. But none were good enough to satisfy our greatest need, which is a perfect man, which is our problem of Sin. We needed, in other words, a God-man. And that's what Jesus is. That's what the Christmas season is about. Moses was never what Jesus would be, and yet he was truly a heroic figure. And so we'll get to Exodus in just a moment and Deuteronomy in just a moment. But before we do that, I want to just talk a little bit about Moses giving you some backstory. And this is going to be a little bit of a longer introduction before we can really get to some of the notes on the screen and stuff like that. Well, I'll start by saying this, that no Old Testament figure is mentioned in the New Testament more than Moses. He's a pretty profound character, a pretty profound figure. Moses is the author of the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, foundational books of the Bible. Moses was the man chosen to bring rescue to his people, to God's people. God specifically chose Moses to lead the Israelites from captivity in Egypt to salvation in the promised land. And check this out. We mention this in Hebrews, by the way, but 1,200 years after his death, the author of Hebrews called out Jewish believers in Jesus for giving Moses a higher position of praise than Jesus. It's a big deal, right? Moses is a massive figure in their people's history. Don't miss, hear that, by the way, 1,200 years. You couldn't tell me anybody that lived 1,200 years ago, probably. Their hero lived 1,200 years prior that's the 800s if you want to do the math for us it's a long time ago and we're going to get to the notes on the screen shortly but before we get there i want to bridge the gap between what we looked at last week in abraham and what we're going to see this week in the person of moses i'll start in genesis 15 13. this is what genesis 15 13 says then the lord said to abram know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners I mean, travelers without a home in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Now, that long precedes the slavery that would eventually happen several generations, three generations later, that God's people will be enslaved in Egypt. And so, how does that come to be? Where do we go from Abram in, in the land of Canaan all of a sudden to uh, Moses in the land of Egypt? Well, there are a couple of generations between there, it started with famine. God's people were without food and without sustenance, and so they had to figure out where they could get it from, and Egypt ended up being the place where they could get it. Abraham had a great-grandson. His name was Joseph, and long story short, Moses brought rescue for Israel because he gained favor with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. In Exodus chapter 1, though, we see that things take a very quick turn from the end of Genesis to the beginning of Exodus when it says that a new Pharaoh was in town and he did not know Joseph. And as a result, he subjected, while, while Israelites had a, a prominent position with one Pharaoh, a new Pharaoh came who did not know Joseph, and so he subjected the Israelites to slavery. But then the Pharaoh had a problem. And that's that God's people there began to quickly multiply and multiply and multiply. And it bred paranoia in Pharaoh, which, by the way, was just the Abrahamic promise we looked at last week beginning to be fulfilled. And that that whole family and that nation began to spread and spread and spread. And so what happened was Pharaoh, in Exodus chapter 1, orders the death of all male Hebrew children to cut it off, like to stop this spread, this multiplication. And yet he didn't, Right. Moses was guarded by God. He was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, raised in an Egyptian family, miraculously. And Moses grew into adulthood. He began to sympathize with his true people. He killed an Egyptian who was beating a Hebrew slave. And so as a result of that, and some of the, again, we're summarizing a lot here, but Moses fled from Egypt to Midian. He married there. He lived and worked for 40 years. And so I say all that to say, there's a situation, a framework that's being laid And that is that people, God's people, required rescue. They were hopeless. Slaves in a land that did not receive them, they needed rescue. in slavery and bondage, calling to God for salvation. And God sends one through whom he would save his people from captivity. Now, I know that's a long introduction, but I think it's important to set the stage to understand where we see this hero, Moses, step in and be a game changer. Deuteronomy thirty four ten says, and there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He's a special person, right? And at the time when Moses is writing these things, that meant somebody like him since. Then Deuteronomy 18 15 says, by the way, this is one of Moses' final speeches, and this is one that I want you to lay your eyes on. So if you have your Bible and you're looking there, please look at this with me, okay? Deuteronomy 18 15. One of Moses' final speeches near the end of his life, he said this, 1815, he said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And we could break that verse apart and look at each like main part of that in sequence and talk about that the entire time this morning, that God will raise him up, right? A prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, you'll listen to him. In other words, they were waiting after Moses, this is important, they were waiting for Moses 2.0, right? The better version. They were awaiting one that would come that would be like Moses and yet even greater. And Moses was great. They were looking for someone even greater than him. He would be raised up by God, is what that verse says, just like Moses was. He would come from among the Israelites, just like Moses was. He will be like Moses, doing powerful, amazing things. He will be worthy of being heard and obeyed, just like Moses was. He will be a prophet, which is just a way of saying a mouthpiece, a messenger of God who fulfilled these words. And the one who it would be is obviously the person we celebrate today and at the Christmas season and all year round, Jesus the Christ. He is the one that Moses is pointing forward to. And again, I'll say this just for emphasis, 1,200 years after Moses' death, the people on the banks of the Jordan River asked John the Baptist if he was him. You know why? Because they were looking for him. For 1,200 years, you guys. That's back to the 800s, for frame of reference. that's a long time. And they were looking for Moses 2.0. John 1, 21, this interaction, it says, and this is the people addressing John the Baptist it says, and they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. They're looking for Moses 2.0 for 1,200 years. The next few verses, John 1:26 and 27 say, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you, that should sound like Deuteronomy 18, 15, among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm unworthy to untie. You know what he's saying? Not just as the prophet here, the Christ is here, the one that you've been looking for, Moses 2.0, the greater version. And by the way, and this is so neat, like I'm kind of a, a Bible nerd when it comes to seeing some of these connections, but there's so many similarities between Moses and Jesus that I think that you'll think are kind of neat, and so I'm going to list them. Both Moses and Jesus were born during perilous times, and both narrowly escaped a king bent on murdering babies, right? Pharaoh and Herod. Both Moses and Jesus had a connection to Egypt. And I think this is neat. Moses fled from Egypt. Jesus, under threat of being murdered, fled to Egypt. I think that's kind of amazing, right? Moses spent 40 years as a shepherd. Jesus was the good shepherd. Moses was followed by multitudes. Jesus followed by multitudes as well. Both called on God to miraculously feed multitudes with bread. Give us bread, manna from heaven, right? And what did Jesus do? Multiplied bread and said, you can eat because God has blessed that. Acts 7 talks about Moses, and the Gospels obviously talk about Jesus. But Acts 7, Stephen attesting to Moses says that both Moses and Jesus were mighty in word and deed. They're a lot alike. Moses was the great prophet, the messenger, sent by God to deliver his message. But upon Jesus' arrival, the crowds immediately compared Jesus to the prophet. Deuteronomy 18:15, the one they're waiting for, Moses 2.0. In John 6, 14, it says, when the people saw the sign, when Jesus did an amazing thing, who else did amazing things? Moses did. Right? When Jesus did the sign, it says that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. But hear this. Most profound similarity between the two is that they brought rescue. They brought rescue. More important than any of the other things is that they brought salvation by God's hand. Moses' arrival meant rescue from the bondage in Egypt, but Jesus' arrival was that of the ultimate hero sent to rescue all who would believe from the bondage not of a physical barrier like a nation of Egypt, but from the permanent eternal bondage of the enemy of sin. Jesus is the ultimate hero. And today, we're gonna look at two components of that. The type of rescue that Jesus has brought. And also, by the way, we can say the same thing is true about Moses. The first one is this, that they brought rescue through power. Rescue through power. And again, you're gonna see similarities between both of them, because I wanna point out that they were rescuers. Both of them were rescue through power. Now look, to talk about rescue through power, we could honestly go to so many places to see evidence of the rescuing power of God in Moses' life, but I thought we would go to where it all started. We could go to the Red Sea. We could go to rocks with water. We could talk, to, talk about bread from the heavens. We could talk about pillars of fire and clouds of smoke. We could talk about all those things, right? But instead, I want to start where it all began at a burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 3. Moses, the Savior of God's people. We're going to kind of jump around in chapter 3, but I'm actually going to read all of it, and then we'll make some observations and connect some dots, okay? Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 2. Again, Moses is a shepherd. He is in Midian, away from Egypt, uh, there in the care of his his new family. And it says, he's on a mountain, in verse 2 it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. Verse 4. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him, to Moses, out of the bush. He said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Look at verses, um, verse 6, verse 6 and 7. Let's look at these. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. By the way, notice he brings in Abraham, right? We're connecting these dots here. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, speaking of the slavery, who were in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their sufferings. Look at verses 10 through 12. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. He said, but I will be with you and this shall be a sign for you that I've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Look down at verses 19 through 20. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Listen to this, a mighty hand. Remember the power of God. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt. With all the wonders that I will do in it, after that, he will let you go. Now we know the rest of the story, maybe, right? that that Moses did eventually go, and there's a whole lot more to that story, but as he went, God did do amazing things. He did strike Egypt with a mighty hand. By the way, that language of strike with a mighty hand is more like military language than it is divine language. What God's saying is, with my right hand, with my military force, I'm gonna be the one that liberates you. You don't need an army. My power, that's what he's saying. You're going to go under my power, and I'm going to make it happen. And that's exactly what happened, right? God brought 10 plagues, and eventually God's people were liberated. And after a long story, they found freedom and liberation. Now, when Moses brought that message, Stephen tells us in Acts 7.25, it says, He supposed, Moses, that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. I want you to see that phrase, though. Salvation by his hand. Now, it may be easy to read that and say, wow, Moses must have been really powerful by his hand. He must have done amazing things with his hand. But that's not exactly the case, right? Whose power was it really? It's God's power, right? It's not like, you know, I think about this analogy of like a a really great coach, uh, a great football coach that was bringing victory to his team behind a great quarterback. But here's the thing, it don't matter how great a coach is, if the team absolutely stinks, victory ain't coming, right? Right? They kind of need each other. And by the way, it doesn't matter how good a quarterback is. There's sort of a limit. You got to have X's and O's. You got to have people around you. There's something, some dependency there, right? This is not like that. It's kind of like this. A guitar, there's a couple of guitars up here, right? A guitar is useless in my hands, right? This, it just sounds like a clanging symbol. It's just a gong of nasty noise when you put it in my hands. But if you put it in the hands of Jeff Martin, it's like he's Jimi Hendrix or something. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but that's true, right? If you put it in the hands of a master suddenly that object that really is powerless becomes powerful, right? This is more of God's relationship with Moses than the football analogy, is that Moses wasn't powerful. Moses wasn't an amazing figure unless God empowered him to do so, right? It was under the power of God that Moses was an instrument of rescue, an instrument, not the ultimate source of the power through which rescue was accomplished. But Jesus was different than that, right? Moses was just an instrument, he had no power. Jesus was different than that. He wasn't merely an instrument. He was the source of power. And they both brought rescue. Moses stood before Pharaoh and said, let my people go, Exodus 5, 1. Jesus came, Luke 4, 18, to say, to proclaim liberty to the captives, let my people go, and to set at liberty those who were oppressed, let my people go. They came saying the same thing, right, to different enemies. They both came with miracles of power, whether you're talking about the plagues or the provision from, of manna from heaven, water from a rock, parting the Red Sea. Miracles of great power, right? Moses is an instrument in the hands of a mighty God. And Jesus did the same thing. He healed the blind. He fed the, the, the hungry. He healed the sick. He gave a lame man his legs back. They both came with great power, miracles of power. But most importantly, They they both brought freedom from slavery and bondage, right? They did. Moses freed God's people from Egypt. Jesus freed God's people from sin. But they also didn't just do that, but they brought them to the land of promise. Moses brought God's people to a land of promise, and that's kind of a, a long story too. But Jesus is doing the same thing. This is not our home. This is not our home. There is a land that awaits us. We are exiles away from home. And one day we will return to the place that God has brought us. You know, in that manger of Christmas, just as vital as the goodness and the love of God, and listen, how vital is the love of God to the Christmas season? But just as vital as the goodness and the love of God at Christmas is the greatness and the power of God. It's not just about a God of love. It's a God of great power. Herod couldn't stop him, Satan couldn't stop him. In a land where only Caesar was king, wealthy philosophers traveled across the desert to bow at his feet. He was powerful, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And at the cross, just as vital as the goodness and the love of God is the greatness, the power of God. God's love, in other words, is of little value if not for his power, right? You love your children, right? If you're a dad or mom, you love your kids, but your love at the end of the day is of little value if you can't stop a tornado bearing down in your home, right? It's valuable, but at the end of the day, it's limited, right? Even if it's unconditional, it's ultimately limited because you are not infinitely powerful. God is. God's love is great, but unless he's great, it is limited. The reason I say that is because the cross and empty grave are monuments, yes, of God's love, but they are monuments of the power of God. Romans 3.24, speaking of the cross and the empty grave, talking about people who, by the way, Romans 3.23 says that all sin and fall short of the glory of God. That's not on the screen, the next verse is, but it says the same ones, notice the juxtaposition, All falls short of the glory of God. They're all broken and are justified. The wretches, all of us in here, fall short of the glory of God, and yet all of us, by the good news of the gospel, can be declared justified. That word simply means it's a judicial term that says made right, declared right. How can we be so desensitized? Do you hear the power of that statement? You're very motionless and quiet. I don't think you understand what amazing message that is. That everyone in this room coming into this world separated and broken apart from a holy God, that's justice, can stand before the judgment seat and because of Jesus' substitutionary death can be said, justified. That's the power of God. Yes, it's the love of God, but it's the power of God. I mean, wow, Romans 8, 38 and 39. This is not on the screen, so listen closely. For I am sure that neither death, listen to the power here, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, listen, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. That's powerful. Because I don't know about you, I give God reasons to forsake me every single day. And yet the power of the cross says, not today. Not any day. Eternity in the presence of God. You know why? Because we're justified. That's amazing, y'all. It's not just the goodness of God. It's the power of God to save from the uttermost. Not just the power to save, but the power to keep. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us. Who were once separated but have been brought near. And the reason I say that, and there's a strong word of application here, is that if you are found in Christ, if you have placed your saving faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, he has made you right. I need you to understand, no one can disqualify you. No one, including you. No one can disqualify you. The power of the cross tells self-imposed accusations that they have nothing to stand on those feelings of doubt, shame, worry, sin, even Satan, they have no claim over you because God has claim over you. That's the power of the gospel. Because a lamb died in our place. By the way, a lamb died in the place of Israel too. Another connection to Moses, the death of the lamb, the Passover lamb that they spread over the doorpost. By the way, you think, well, man, really, God really had it out for Egypt in that moment, right? He really gave it to them, killing the firstborn, the 10th plague. But you understand the reason that he called Israel to paint their doorposts with the blood of a spotless lamb is because they deserve to die too. You hear that, right? Egypt were not the only ones that deserved death that day. All of them had fallen short of the glory of God, and therefore all of them were guilty under the punishment of sin. But God gave them a way to escape it. He gave them a substitutionary lamb. He gave them a payment, which is the second thing that I want you guys to see. Rescue through payment. Rescue through payment. Both Moses and Jesus were mediators. That just simply means a go-between. Someone that stands between two parties, usually parties that are at conflict with one another. Moses and Jesus were both mediators of a conflict relationship, a covenant agreement. And that relationship is obviously between God and human beings. Going back to that passage in Deuteronomy eighteen, fifteen, again one of Moses' final speeches, as a speech of meditation or mediation, I should say, the Lord your God it says will raise up for you a prophet, a mouthpiece, a messenger like me from among you from your brothers it is to him you shall listen and that was Moses's role a messenger from God and a mediator of a covenant I got a slide that I want you guys to see this morning and it's kind of comparing this old covenant and new covenant and I know this is a lot of information and so you don't have to write it down I simply just want you to see it so that you can see I've talked a lot about the comparisons between Moses and Jesus this morning this is one that I was like saying this is probably not going to be enough let me show it to you okay so in the Old Covenant, which was the covenant that Moses brought to God's people. First of all, it was an agreement, and that's what a covenant is. If, if you're married, you've entered into a covenant. It's an agreement, a legal kind of binding agreement that you have with one another. God had an agreement, a legal agreement because there was a law, right? A legal agreement with him and Israel, an agreement between God and the Israelites. But that agreement was conditional. It was a conditional agreement centered on the law, which Moses, by the way, gave them, the law of Moses given at Mount Sinai. But Israel failed their condition, right? They failed their condition. God gave them the law, and yet they disobeyed. They transgressed that law. They failed the condition. They couldn't please God by their works. And also built into that was because of the wages of sin, which is death, according to their law. This is very important. The people's sin required death. That's what the wages of sin means, right? Death. Well, because sin required death, and God is a God of mercy, is he just going to kill everybody? Well, God provided a way. He provided a way that death could be in place of death. And that's the sacrificial system, which may be the part of your Bible that you may ignore because it's a little bit boring and hard to read. But understand that that is an essential part of the the biblical story, is that God's people could not be with God. And therefore God gave them a system of death instead of their death. That was the sacrificial system, that they would please God by ongoing sacrifices because there was no perfect sacrifice. And so they had to continually bring sacrifices. And Moses mediated a covenant of temporal payment, which is what that is, a mediator of a covenant. And man, I'll just be honest with you guys, isn't that a sad covenant? Can you imagine? That is a sad, can you imagine if we came in here every Sunday and I said, okay, everybody, bring your birds, bring your, (laughs) that'd be weird. Like. The church kind of gets a weird rep anyway. That'd be way weirder, right? Bring Bring the goats. Who's got lambs? Okay, let's bring them up. That would be weird, but listen, that was life for God's people under the old covenant. It was hard because they sinned, just like you and I do, all the time, and so they constantly had to bring payment, death instead of death, life for life, because they couldn't stand before holy God, and God gave them away. Now listen, Here's the good news. The gospel means good news. And so surely we have something good to be seen in Jesus. The difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. We see this, first of all, Jesus introduces in Matthew five seventeen a neat verse of scripture that I want to read. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets? He's saying the old covenant was important. I didn't come to abolish it. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I'm going to do something that makes them all satisfied. Do something that makes them all perfectly completed. I'm going to put a bow on it. Luke twenty two twenty says and likewise this is the Lord's Supper uh, the, at the last supper with the disciples likewise the cup after they had eaten he said this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood Now your Bible may not have underlines and circles for italics or anything but I'm going to suggest to you there's a very important word in that verse and it's the word my what kind of blood because they poured out blood all the time right? they poured out blood all the time in a covenant even, but Jesus said, I'm, gonna come, I'm coming to change the game, and now the blood that you're going to pour out is, is my blood. Mine will be different for you. This is what John the Baptist meant way before that even, in John 1:29, when it says, the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, and you know what he said? Behold the Lamb right? Behold the lamb of God. By the way, notice this isn't the lamb of, of this family or this family or this family. Everybody had a lamb. They brought lambs all the time. This is God's lamb. He was bringing a lamb that was going to make a payment that would end all payments, right? An eternal payment who takes away the sin of the world. Notice, doesn't take away the sins of this family and this family and this family. and the, no, All families. This is a new kind of sacrifice, a new life for life, a new death for death. And those are the three components I want to look at. In the new covenant, number one, it's a new agreement. Not just between God and Israel, but between God and the world. It's a greater covenant, is it not? A greater covenant. Not just between God and Israel, God and the world. All who would come to him by faith. It's not just conditional on the law, but it's unconditional based on grace, which is the second thing. It's an unconditional agreement. Not based on, can you do enough? Can you do enough? Can you bring the sacrifice? Can you do this? No. Unconditional, based not on your working at it, not on adherence to a law, but on God's unconditional favor based on his grace, a gift. And then finally, it's not brought by the payment of animals, but the blood of a different sort of lamb. That's why Jesus said, he didn't say, it's, it's, it's done for a year. It's, it's done for the week. I've, I've paid for now. And what did he say? It is completed. It is finished. Praise Jesus, y'all. <clears throat> A couple of verses that I think really support that. <clears throat> Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him we have redemption. Notice, in him. The important word there is him. Not through animals, not through what? Through him we have redemption, purchase, through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which may be more familiar to you. For by grace you have been saved, not your payment. By grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. Who's it for? Go back to that unconditional slide. But the old covenant and new covenant. Jeff, you got that? There you go. Who's it for? The world. It's for the world. It's for anybody. Listen, there are people in this room that may be tempted to say, oh, but pastor, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what's part of my history. You don't know about the addiction. You don't know about the sin that I'm wrestling with that only I know about right now. You don't know about the abortion that I've had. It's unforgivable. As heinous as all sin is, there is simply a love and a power that is greater. The blood of the Lamb, the power of God, for all who would believe. It's not a matter of works. That's why that passage in Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is so beautiful, is that you didn't earn that. Jesus earned that for you. There's only one way. It's not by family. It's not by church attendance. It's certainly not by morals. We'd all be disqualified on that front. It is by faith in Christ alone. Guys, the Christmas story is about more than a baby in a manger. It is about a superhero. It is, And not those oversaturated, ridiculous Marvel movies. Sorry if that offends you. Not really, I don't care. Guys, this book is the greatest superhero story that you will ever hear or see, ever. This isn't a book of rules. This isn't a book of morality. This isn't a book like a handbook to life. Certainly you could say that all those things are components within, but this is a rescue story, a superhero story. That Jesus became sin who knew no sin. That in him, you who know sin could know life and righteousness. That's a superhero. That's rescue at the hand of a holy God and rescue to those who had no business being rescued. That's the gospel. The God who powerfully gave his life to rescue the hopeless, who powerfully defeated the grave that we too may have eternal life. Guys, can we just commit this? And I've said this the last two weeks. Can we just commit this Christmas season to actually celebrating Christmas? You hear what I'm saying about that, right? I'm not saying to go stuff your face with fruitcake. I'm saying celebrate Christmas. Christ celebrate a superhero who apart from him you got nothing do we celebrate christmas do we point our children to a superhero at christmas and i know they get stars in their eyes when they see the presents. but do we take our effort to say even if it's a vain effort to say baby there is a precious gift that's not under this tree We say that. And we pray for the ones we love. But God doesn't call you to change people's hearts. He calls you to be faithful to take them the message that can. And you got to do that. But the only way you can is if he changes your heart. Is if that story matters to you and God help us if it doesn't. (sighs) There's one more similarity that I wanted to point out before I'm finished today, and I'm almost done. Despite his heroism, Moses, at the end of the day, he lacked faith. In Numbers chapter 20, the story goes that God's people were fussing. They needed water, and this wasn't the first first time that they were fussing. They did that a lot. It sounds like God's people. Now, they needed water. They came to Moses and Aaron, who Aaron was his boy, his right-hand guy, and they said, we need water. Turn to Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron said, you got it. Let's Let's go talk to God. So they go talk to God, and God says, Moses and Aaron, Moses, what I want you to do is speak to this rock. Just speak to this rock and water is going to come out of it. Wow. This has happened before. He'd asked Moses to strike a rock and water came from it. But this time he said, You don't even have to touch it. Just speak to it and watch me work. Just speak to it and watch what happens. Moses went out before the people. He went to the rock. And against their fussing and their bickering, he took his staff and he smacked it, and nothing happened and they smacked it again and water came out. And that was the moment that God said, you're faithless. Whether it was him making a show and wanting God's people to see, wow, what what, what Moses has done. Or whether it was, and by the way, he didn't give God credit after it happened either. But that was the moment that God said, you're not gonna enter the promised land. You'll see it, but you'll never enter it. Moses was so heroic, man, for 1,200 years. They said, we want one like him, because he was amazing, and yet the greatest of men was still just a man. He was still broken just like you and I were. He was still, at the end of the day, faithless, just like me and you. You see, that water would leave them thirsty. They'd want more, and they'd want more, and they'd want more, because that water left them thirsty. Even if it satisfied a need, it wasn't the biggest need. Jesus came along later on. John chapter 7, verses thirty. 7 and 38, it says that Jesus stood up and he cried out. Listen to this. If anyone thirsts, this should sound familiar. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Boom, baby! Listen to the next thing in verse 40. This is where my mind just explodes. When they heard these words, you know what some of the people said? this really is the prophet. What'd the first prophet do? He gave them water, and they said, he's promising water again. But Jesus' water was not that that would leave them thirsty. It was the water of eternal life. And he said, all you gotta do is just come to me and drink. Guys, this is the invitation of life today. Maybe you're here today, and the praise team, you guys can go ahead and start coming up. I want you to listen very closely to the next two things I'm about to say. Maybe you're here today and have spent your life drinking dead water, seeking fulfillment that just leaves you ceaselessly thirsty, and this is what I mean. Maybe you spend your life up until this very day drinking the water of a career, drinking the water of chasing some dream, drinking the water of addiction, drinking the water of social media or social status. If I could just reach this place, that's fulfillment. If you're drinking the water of good morals, striving at it, working at it, drinking the water of a busy schedule, the water of being driven by your needs in this life and neglecting him who can give you eternal life. And you lay your head on your pillow every single night feeling empty because that's what you are but there's one greater who says come to me and drink and you will be satisfied forever listen to this Satan's goal isn't to get you to bow to him it's to throw any and everything at you just so you won't bow to Jesus He doesn't need your praise just as long as it doesn't go to the one who deserves it. Today, you can be sure of the spring from which you're drinking and you may have been wrestling with that for a long time. If you haven't noticed, there's a movement of God in this church. You know why? Why? It's not because the preacher's funny. It's not because we got cool programs. It's not because we have good music. We do. It's not because we're friendly. We are. It's not because this church is great. It's because our God is. And I believe that God is working, that same God, who's clearly causing a movement in this place is trying to cause a movement in some of your hearts. And Satan just wants you to say, don't move. Don't surrender. Don't pray that prayer. Don't talk to that pastor. Don't walk that aisle. Don't go to that class. Because he knows, man. He knows that you're this close to finding the right water Today, you can.